Part two of Chapter ten of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter ten The Second Expedition Successful. Part two. During the morning of Friday, the thirtieth, everything went well. The ship had been kept at the speed of about five knots, the cable paid out at about six, the average angle with the horizon at which it left the ship being about fifteen degrees, while the indicated strain upon the dynamometer seldom showed more than sixteen hundred pounds to seventeen hundred pounds. Observations made at noon showed that we had made good ninety miles from the starting point since the previous day, with an expenditure, including the loss in lowering the splice and during the subsequent stoppages, of one hundred and thirty-five miles of the cable. During the latter portion of the day the barometer fell considerably, and toward the evening it blew almost a gale of wind from the eastward, dead ahead of course. As the breeze freshened the speed of the engines was gradually increased, but the wind more than increased in proportion, so that before the sun went down the Agamemnon was going full steam against the wind, only making a speed of about four knots an hour. During the evening topmasts were lowered, and spars, yards, sails, and indeed everything aloft that could offer resistance to the wind was sent down to deck. But still the ship made but little way, chiefly in consequence of the heavy sea, though the enormous quantity of fuel consumed showed us that, if the wind lasted, we should be reduced to burning the masts, spars, and even the decks to bring the ship into Valentia. It seemed to be our particular ill fortune to meet with headwinds whichever way the ship's head was turned. On our journey out we had been delayed, and obliged to consume an undue proportion of coal, for want of an easterly wind, and now all our fuel was wanted because of one. However, during the next day the wind gradually went around to the southwest, which, though it raised a very heavy sea, allowed us to husband our small remaining store of fuel. At noon on Saturday, the 31st of July, observations showed us to have made good 120 miles of distance since noon of the previous day, with a loss of about 27% of cable. The Niagara, as far as could be judged from the amount of cable she paid out, which, by a previous arrangement, was signalled at every ten miles, kept pace with us, within one or two miles, the whole distance across. During the afternoon of Saturday, the wind again freshened up, and before nightfall, it again blew nearly a gale of wind, and a tremendous sea ran before it from the southwest, which made the Agamemnon pitch to such an extent that it was thought impossible the cable could hold on through the night. Indeed, had it not been for the constant care and watchfulness exercised by Mr. Bright and the two energetic engineers, Mr. Canning and Mr. Clifford, who acted with him, it could not have been done at all. Men were kept at the wheels of the machine to prevent their stopping as the stern of the ship rose and fell with the sea, for had they done so, the cable must undoubtedly have parted. During Sunday the sea and wind increased, and before the evening it blew a smart gale. Now, indeed, were the energy and activity of all engaged in the operations tasked to the utmost. Mr. Hoare and Mr. Moore, the two engineers who had had the charge of the relieving wheels of the dynamometer, had to keep watch, and watch alternately every four hours, and while on duty, durst not let their attention to be removed from their occupation for one moment, for on their releasing the brakes every time the stern of the ship fell into the trough of the sea entirely depended the safety of the cable and the result shows how ably they discharged their duty. Throughout the night there are few who had the least expectation of the cable holding on till morning, and many remained awake, listening for the sound that all most dreaded to hear, namely the gun which should announce the failure of all our hopes. But still the cable, 
which in comparison with the ship from which it was paid out, and the gigantic waves among which it was delivered, was but a mere thread, continued to hold on, only leaving a silvery phosphorus line upon the stupendous seas as they rolled on toward the ship. With Sunday morning came no more improvement in the weather. Still the sky remained black and stormy to windward, and the constant violent squalls of wind and rain which prevailed during the whole day served to keep up, if not to augment, the height of the waves. But the cable had gone through so much during the night that our confidence in its continuing to hold was much restored. At noon, observation showed us to have made good 130 miles from noon of the previous day, and about 360 from our starting point in mid-ocean. We had passed by the deepest sounding of 2,400 fathoms, and over more than half of the deep water generally, while the amount of cable still remaining in the ship was more than sufficient to carry us to the Irish coast. Even supposing the continuance of the bad weather should oblige us to pay out the same amount of slack cable we had been hitherto wasting. Thus far things looked very promising for our ultimate success, but former experience showed us only too plainly that we could never suppose that some accident might not arise until the ends had been fairly landed on the opposite shores. During Sunday night and Monday morning the weather continued as boisterous as ever, and it was only by the most indefatigable exertions of the engineer upon duty that the wheels could be prevented from stopping altogether, as the vessel rose and fell with the sea, and once or twice they did come completely to a standstill in spite of all that could be done to keep them moving. But fortunately, they were again set in motion before the stern of the ship was thrown up by the succeeding wave. No strain could be placed upon the cable, of course, and though the dynamometer occasionally registered 1,700 pounds as the ship lifted, it was oftener below 1,000 and was frequently nothing, the cable running out as fast as its own weight and the speed of the ship could draw it. But even with all these forces acting unresistedly upon it, the cable never paid itself out at a greater speed than eight knots an hour at the time the ship was going at the rate of six and a half knots. Subsequently, however, when the speed of the ship even exceeded six knots and a half, the cable never ran out so quick. The average speed maintained by the ship up to this time, and indeed for the whole voyage, was about five knots and a half, the cable, with occasional exceptions, running about thirty percent faster. At noon on Monday, August 2nd, had made good one hundred and twenty-seven and a half miles since noon of the previous day, and completed more than half-way to our ultimate destination. During the afternoon an American three-masted schooner, which afterward proved to be the chieftain, was seen standing from the eastward toward us. No notice was taken of her at first, but when she was within about half a mile of the Agamemnon, she altered her course, and bore right down across our bows. A collision, which might prove fatal to the cable, now seemed inevitable or could only be avoided by the equally hazardous expedient of altering the Agamemnon's course. The Valorous steamed ahead, and fired a gun for her to heave to, which, as she did not appear to take much notice of, was quickly followed by another from the bows of the Agamemnon, and a second and third from the Valorous, but still this vessel held on her course, and as the only resource left to avoid a collision, the course of the Agamemnon was altered just in time to pass within a few yards of her. It was evident that our proceedings were a source of the greatest possible astonishment to them, for all her crew crowded upon her deck and rigging. At length they evidently discovered who we were and what we were doing, for the crew manned the rigging, and dipping the ensign several times they gave us three hearty cheers. Though the Agamemnon was obliged to acknowledge these congratulations in due form, the feelings of annoyance with which we regarded the vessel, which, either by stupidity or carelessness of those on board, 
was so near adding a fatal and unexpected mishap to the long chapter of accidents which had already been encountered, may easily be imagined. To those below, who of course did not see the ship approaching, the sound of the first gun came like a thunderbolt, for all took it as the signal of the breaking of the cable. The dinner-tables were deserted in a moment, and a general rush made up the hatches to the deck. But before reaching it, their fears were quickly banished by the report of the succeeding gun, which all knew well could only be caused by a ship in our way or a man overboard. Throughout the greater portion of Monday morning, the electrical signals from the Niagara had been getting gradually weaker, until they ceased altogether from nearly three-quarters of an hour. Our uneasiness, however, was in some degree lessened by the fact that the stoppage appeared to be a want of continuity. Footnote B. This is an error, as we learn on the high authority of Professor Thompson himself. It was defective insulation, not any want of continuity, that caused the weak signals. Want of continuity would have stopped the signals altogether, and given quite different indications on the testing instruments from those he observed. End of footnote and not any defect in insulation, and there was consequently every reason to suppose that it might arise from faulty connection on board the Niagara. Accordingly, Professor Thompson sent a message to the effect that the signals were too weak to be read, and, as if they had been waiting such a signal to increase their battery power, the deflections immediately returned even stronger than they had ever been before. Toward the evening, however, they again declined in force for a short time. With the exception of those little stoppages, the electrical condition of the submerged wire seemed to be much improved. It was evident that the low temperature of the water at the immense depth improved considerably the insulating properties of the gutta-percha, while the enormous pressure to which it must have been subjected probably tended to consolidate its texture, and to fill up any air-bubbles or slight forts in manufacture which may have existed. The weather during Monday night moderated a little, but still there was a very heavy sea on, which endangered the wire every second minute. About three o'clock on Tuesday morning, all on board were startled from their beds by the loud booming of a gun. Every one, without waiting for the performance of the most particular toilet, rushed on deck to ascertain this cause of the disturbance. Contrary to all expectation, the cable was safe, but just in the grey light could be seen the Valorous, rounded to in the most warlike attitude, firing gun after gun in quick succession toward a large American bark, which, quite unconscious of our proceeding, was standing right across our stern. Such loud and repeated remonstrances from a large steam frigate were not to be despised, and evidently, without knowing the why or the wherefore, she quickly threw her sails aback and remained hove to. Whether those on board her considered that we were engaged in some filibustering expedition, or regarded our proceedings as another British outrage upon the American flag, it is impossible to say. But certain it is that, apparently in great trepidation, she remained hove-to until we had lost sight of her in the distance. Tuesday was a much finer day than any we had experienced for nearly a week, but still there was a considerable sea running, and our dangers were far from past. Yet the hopes of our ultimate success ran high. We had accomplished nearly the whole of the deep-sea portion of the route in safety, and that too under the most unfavorable circumstances possible. Therefore, there was every reason to believe that unless some unforeseen accident should occur, we should accomplish the remainder. About five o'clock in the evening, the steep submarine mountain which divides the telegraphic plateau from the Irish coast was reached, and the sudden shallowing of the water had a very marked effect upon the cable, causing the strain on and the speed of it to lessen every minute. A great deal of slack was paid out to allow for any inequalities which might exist, though undiscovered by the sounding line. 
About ten o'clock the shoal water of two hundred and fifty fathoms was reached. The only remaining anxiety now was the changing from the lower main coil to that upon the upper deck, and this most difficult and dangerous operation was successfully performed between three and four o'clock on Wednesday morning. Wednesday was a beautiful, calm day. Indeed, it was the first on which any one would have thought of making a splice since the day we started from the rendezvous. We therefore congratulated ourselves on having saved a week by commencing operations on the Thursday previous. At noon we were eighty-nine miles of distant from the telegraph station at Valentia. The water was shallow, so that there was no difficulty in paying out the wire almost without any loss of slack, and all looked upon the undertaking as virtually accomplished. At about one o'clock in the evening, the second change from the upper deck coil to that upon the all-up deck was safely effected, and shortly after the vessels exchanged signals that they were in two hundred fathoms water. As the night advanced, the speed of the ship was reduced, and it was known that we were only a short distance from the land, and there would be no advantage in making it before daylight in the morning. About twelve o'clock, however, the Skellig's light was seen in the distance, and the Valorous steamed on ahead to lead us in to the coast, firing rockets at intervals to direct us, which were answered by us from the Agamemnon, though, according to Mr. Moriarty, the master's wish, the ship, disregarding the Valorous, kept her own course, which proved to be the right one in the end. By daylight on the morning of Thursday, the bold and rocky mountains which entirely surround the wild and picturesque neighborhood of Valentia rose right before us at a few miles' distance. Never probably was the sight of land more welcome, as it brought to a successful termination one of the greatest, but at the same time most difficult schemes which was ever undertaken. Had it been the dullest and most melancholy swamp on the face of the earth that lay before us, we should have found it a pleasant prospect. But as the sun rose from the estuary of Dingle Bay, tinging with a deep, soft purple the lofty summits of the steep mountains which surround its shores, and illuminating the masses of morning vapour which hung upon them, it was a scene which might be in beauty with anything that could be produced by the most florid imagination of an artist. No one on shore was apparently conscious of our approach, so the Valorous steamed ahead to the mouth of the harbour and fired a gun. Both ships made straight for Dollis Bay, and about six o'clock came to anchor at the side of Beganish Island, opposite to Valentia. As soon as the inhabitants became aware of our approach, there was a general desertion of the place, and hundreds of boats crowded around us, their passengers in the greatest state of excitement, to hear all about our voyage. The knight of Kerry was absent in Dingle, but a messenger was immediately dispatched for him, and he soon arrived in Her Majesty's gunboat Shamrock. Soon after our arrival, a signal was received from the Niagara that they were preparing to land, having paid out one thousand and thirty nautical miles of cable while the Agamemnon had accomplished her portion of the distance with an expenditure of one thousand and twenty miles. Footnote C. The Niagara had sixty miles farther to run than the Agamemnon to land the cable at the head of Trinity Bay. End footnote. Making the total length of the wire submerged two thousand and fifty geographical miles. Immediately after the ships cast anchor, the paddle-box boats of the Valorous were got ready, and two miles of cable coiled away in them for the purpose of landing the end, but it was late in the afternoon before the procession of boats left the ship, under a salute of three rounds of small arms from the detachments of marines on board the Agamemnon, under the command of Lieutenant Morris. The progress to the end of the shore was very slow, in consequence of the very stiff wind which blew at the time, but at about three o'clock the end was safely brought on shore at Knightstown, Valentia, by Mr. Bright and Mr. Canning, the chief and second engineers to whose exertions the success of the undertaking is attributable, and the Knight of Kerry. 
Footnote D. A name that occurs several times in this history, and one never to be mentioned but with honor. The Knight of Kerry was Lord of the Isles on that part of the Irish coast, and from the beginning showed the deepest interest in this enterprise, and by this generous hospitality to all connected with it, made many friends by whom he was greatly remembered on both sides of the Atlantic. End footnote. The end was immediately laid in the trench, which had been dug to receive it, while a royal salute, making the neighboring rocks and mountains reverberate, announced that the communication between the old and the new world had been completed. End of chapter 10 of The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph Recorded by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net